introduce Dr. Bond at this time, which is, alas, his last lecture. It seems as if you've only just arrived, rather, and now you're almost on the wing to depart, but it's been such a rich experience. You've given us so much, and I won't say any more. This is indeed uh, the last lecture that I shall be giving at Temenos uh, this time. I hope there will be another time, although these things are not in our hands at all. And I am so grateful for this time. And I'm so grateful that so many of you have, uh, have come and to see uh, so many of you and some more today. It really it, it delights my heart. I must address you more formally, uh, Kathleen. I must say, Dr. Kathleen Rain, distinguished guests and friends, I'm very happy to be here with you again. And may this experiment which you have started grow in, in, in depth and attract not only more, more people, but more commitment, more ideas. It's, it's hard work in our in our times, of course, to start an institution uh, which is committed to the study of, uh, of uh, spiritual truth. And, but, but experiments have to be started. Ours is an age of experiments. So in, in, in this, by, you, you are conforming to this age, uh, Dr. Rain, and not merely rebelling against it. It should be possible to do both. My prayers and good wishes to you and your wonderful team here. There are two, two things that Dr. Rain suggested that I do this time. One has been a set of lectures on what I call the Sages of Modern India. The last hundred years of our modern Indian history has of course been very, very turbulent. And, and there are sad things there. There are, there are wonderful great heights too. It's a mixture of, of sad things and, and wonderful uh, things. But there is something which is beyond this kind of praise or blame, which is the arrival of sages who, seek, who don't seek praise and who don't worry about blame because they bring truth, a, a fresh vision of truth. Uh, truth is timeless, but they bring something fresh. It, I don't say new, but fresh, which, which has the, the freshness of, uh, of the morning. And, and we have seen such sages in our, in our land during the last hundred years. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, Swami Vivekananda, Ramana Maharshi, and others. One can't really count them up and say, here is a cricket team of them, or here is a whatever. There have been more than one, uh, representing the one, of course. And uh, I have uh, given lectures on Ramakrishna, Vivekananda, Gandhi, and Ramana. And simultaneously, uh, uh, I was also doing a, a, a seminar with a, a wonderful group of uh, people. I hesitate to call them students. They are uh, 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 fellow seekers. And we've been looking at the Mandukya Upanishad. Mandukya Upanishad, as I, as I uh, explained to, to my class, Quite literally, 
I mean, of course, it is a very sacred text, uh, a wonderful piece of a scripture of the Hindus. It has that place in 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 uh, uh, in antiquity and and in uh, uh, heritage, but. It, it, it also literally means the frog's secret. It's the secret of the frog. The frog who reigns in all his senses. And you think you have defined him. You think you have placed him. And he goes plop and upsets all your definitions. That is the great uh, secret of the frog. That's the Mandukya Upanishad. The wonderful 12 uh, uh, verse text uh, uh, the twelve uh, the, the most hauntingly beautiful croakings of, of this frog. The name Man- Manduka, which means frog in Sanskrit, was, was the name which this Rishi, this sage, uh, took for himself. And perhaps uh, it's a name which we should all deserve to acquire. Now, I'm going to talk about Om today, which is what the Mandukya Upanishad teaches explicitly. So in a sense, this is going to be a lecture form of the seminar that I have had the privilege of of doing with students. And in a sense, the seminar had been a seminar form of the lectures that I have been privileged to give here. So there has been this wonderful interconnectedness between the two tasks that you set for me, uh, Dr. Aid, and I'm very, very grateful for that. Now, how do I begin with the subject of Om, which is a chant, which is a mantra, which is a sacred word, which is a name, which is the name of many people in India also. How does one begin? Every Indian has an Om story, of course. Om also, to us English, knowing uh, Indian sounds like home. So, om, sweet Om, is a, is a wonderful thought. And also those who are in a hurry to, to bring about some kind of religious society in India might, might remember that Om was not built in a day, so to speak. It takes thousands of years to bring that about. If only uh, uh, our impatient fundamentalists in India would remember this, I think they might well uh, slow down a bit. And I see no harm in, in that. But let me tell my own uh, own story. It is the sweetest story uh, that I know. It, it happened, believe me, to me. Some years ago, I know, um, I know a couple, a young couple, who, one of whom was uh, a former pupil of mine, and they have two children, and one of them, a, a little girl, had some sort of problem during birth. We think it's a problem anyway. She, this problem resulted in her refusal to speak for the first three years. Refusal. It was clearly not a case of inability because she was speaking with her eyes and with her hands, but she refused to conform to speaking humanity, with good reason, no doubt. But she refused to speak for three, three years. And, and her parents, my dear friends, were very worried about this. And I was about to leave for America for a year to teach, uh, among other things, home. And so they invited me to dinner. And I, 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 I talked to, uh, to little Maya, Choti as we called her, and she refused to talk, of course. But she didn't refuse to listen. That, that, that's a great mystery. Uh, so I, uh, towards the end of the evening, I decided to teach her the chant Om. I sat her down next to me and I said, Choti, now say Om. She looked at me very amusedly for a while. Is it well to test the, my authority for saying this? Who knows? She might have been instructed in this very chant in a previous birth, or, or by God in the womb, or wherever. She looked at me very amusedly. Then I said, Jyoti, say Om. 
revealing my impatience as a school teacher at that point. She wouldn't say anything. But believe me, before I left, she did say Om very quickly, Om, in her own uh, uh, way. Not, not a fully pronounced mantra conforming to the standard procedures for salvation in Lube, but her own quiet little Om. She did. She said, all right, Om. And I left. And I, would you believe this? I came back after a year. And I went to this home. And there she was outside the door. And she said in Hindi, and I translate into English rapidly. Uh, oh, by the way, yes. Oh, how could I forget? She didn't merely, yes. She said, she called me Om Mama. Now, Mama in Hindi means mother's brother. Now, she gave me this name, Om Mama, you have come back, she said. Come and join everybody inside. We're all waiting for you. She produced this rapid sentence and preceding it with this most wonderful name that anybody ever has given me. Oh, mama. So I speak as an oh, mama for this wonderful little girl. <laughs> and who, uh, who uh, through whom, through whose unworthy teaching, uh, absolutely, uh, God, uh, and I, I really am sharing this with you in, with a sense of responsibility. The only miracle I know to have happened through me was, was this, is this. This little girl learning to speak after a year. A year after I had taught her to say Om. A year after she had agreed reluctantly to say Om to me. And even more than that, she, it, was a, a, it was a sacred name given to me. Uh, Uncle Om, that's what it means. So, Uncle is Mama, is, is, is Mother's brother. In India, that's a very, as, uh, as Indian friends here would, would surely confirm, it is one of the, the most wonderful relationships that children have to their mother's brother. And Mama, Ma is mother. And Mama is a sort of double mother. You, know, you have to be extra uh, maternal to your nephews and nieces. And you, you, uh, you tend to want to be that. It's, it's also, you are a sort of Mama is a sort of teacher, in, in, because uh, uh, the fathers are pretended as everywhere to be absent and, and busy and so on. But the mother's brother often takes upon himself the responsibility of, of uh, 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 teaching children to speak. My own mama did this for me, and I, uh, I did this for Choti and Maya. So one is, this is a sort of second birth, really. This is why Mama, I think, a second mother, because one is pregnant with a child's speaking, really, and gives birth to the speaking child immaculately without any physical contact at all with anybody. It's a, it's a wonderful mystery, uh, uh, and I share it with you. So that's my own story. That's the, what I'm trying to say is that the lecture that I'm about to give, it's not yet started, I can assure you, it's still only <laughs> beginning of it, is going to be built on, on something like this very real experience. And this is my real experience. Now, yes, the lecture starts and I must look at my notes. I've given a subtitle to this lecture. Om, the mantra of Indian spirituality. There are lots of words here. I've said something about Om. Clearly a great deal more needs to be said about Om. But what is mantra? And perhaps all of you perhaps know what a mantra is, but let me try and throw some light on it. Clearly not the first kind of information that you, you might need. You clearly have a lot of information about it. But very roughly, mantra is, is, is a chant, is a chanting. Is which is rest for the restless mind. It is that which establishes the restless mind in peace. Now, it is not a tranquilizer. No. 
You know what it is. Because that's the very last thing a tranquilizer does. It doesn't establish the restless mind in, in peace. But it somehow drugs the, 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 the brain into some kind of unconsciousness for a while, perhaps. But the, this mantra, or any mantra, is a, is a way of establishing the mind without deceiving it in peace, in rest. Not stupor, but in peace and in rest. Now, what is the restless mind? In a sense, you might say, I, I, the subtitle is The Mantra of Indian Spirituality. You might say that a large a chunk of Indian civilization, a large restless chunk of Indian civilization had, has found rest in the mantra. Om. This is why I call it the mantra of Indian spirituality. Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism and others. And there are so many other mantras. There are mantras of Islam. There are mantras of the Adivasis. There are mantras of, of the Christians. We, we have all, all of these. But distinctively Indian spirituality uh, has, uh, uh, is, is the, is the, uh, has established itself. In, 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 in the kind of rest which this mantra, it is a mantra used by the Sikhs, it is a mantra used by the Jains, by the Buddhas, by the Hindus, by all <coughs> sects of all uh, uh, streams of Indian spiritual tradition. Uh, now, the restless mind for, uh, for Hindus immediately is uh, <coughs> something which suggests a monkey. A monkey, we think, although the monkeys might not agree, but is a restless creature, shifty-eyed. Now the mind is a monkey, and and to give rest to this monkey mind is one goal of spiritual teaching. And the, oh, 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 and, and when you think of, of of monkeys in a spiritual context, if you were a Hindu, you would think of of the great devotee Hanuman, of the great devotee monkey devotee of Sri Rama. Now. I think I told a story uh, uh, during one of the lectures about my guru, Ramana Maharshi, being, being very, very fond of monkeys and how he actually helped a deposed monkey king through meditation to acquire enough shakti to regain his kingdom and how this deposed king with his friends came to thank the sage who had gone out to beg during that, during, at that time and they shook all the trees until all the fruits fell at the mouth of the cave as an offering of gratitude. So I think this is a recurrent mystery, the relationship between the human sage and other creatures on this earth. It's a relationship of great intimacy and I think of spiritual fellowship. So I think one way of reading the Ramayana where Hanuman figures is that it's a story also of the relationship between a divine figure and, and the rest of creation. And, and, and the great leap of Hanuman is probably some kind of mutational leap which occurred in consciousness or in the body or in both. Who knows? I think these ancient stories probably embody uh, the memories of not only the human species but of all life and perhaps even of, of matter as it throbs with some, some very, very mysterious energy. Om, they say, I haven't heard this throb, is, is the throbbing of the universe with, with faith, with faith in its own uh, uh, sacredness and in its own destiny. So, so Hanuman uh, is, is the mind, the monkey mind. And what did Hanuman do as a child? Uh, Hanuman, etymologically, the word means the one whose jaw is burnt. And that is because, as a child, he looked at the sun and he thought it was a fruit and leapt towards it and wanted to eat it. 
and got burnt in the process. One shouldn't do that sort of thing. It's very dangerous. Modern technology is constantly trying to do this kind of thing. It's likely to get burnt, I think, and it probably has already burnt more than itself in, in the process. But Hanuman of the burnt chin is a permanent reminder of the unwisdom of regarding truth as something which lies outside there, which is meant to be gobbled up, to be eaten up, to be appropriated, and so on. But that's the restless mind, isn't it? Wanting objects. Let me have this. Let me have that. Let me grab this. Let me control that. Let me consume this and that other. That's the restless mind. It's the mind set <clears throat> in a world of its own making, where, which, where, uh, where the mind thinks that all goodness lies in some object, big or small, or, or medium scale, if you like. No idolatry of the medium scale will do here. Even the medium scale object can be an object of greed. And, and one, one might want to control all medium scale objects. And that wouldn't be a very good application of Schumacher or Gandhi, would it? It wouldn't do that, to do that at all. So, so the restless mind, the monkey mind, is restless because it is divided. It divides reality into itself and objects to be had, to be feared, to be controlled. So the, the mantra which seeks to establish this restless mind in rest really seeks to, to cure the dualism of the mind, of the mind which thinks that uh, uh, what is worth having is out there and, and, and it, it is uh, meant to be, to be had in, in the way of control and greed. That is the restlessness for objects, for, for things. Now, these could be kingdoms, these could be anything. And <clears throat> this doesn't work. But this is one basis for the restlessness of our minds, of our civilizations, of our cultures, of our cities, of our villages even, of our art and culture and everything. More and more new programs. Before a given program is ended, people are thinking of what to do next. I mean, before you, I remember when I used to be a smoker, and I do emphasize the past tense, when I used to be a smoker, I realized that I was hooked when, before I had finished one cigarette, I reached out for another. That's a perfect image of, of the, the addiction to objects of the restless mind. Be before we complete one round of uh, indulgence, we want another. And that is the, 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 the basis of one kind of restlessness. Om seeks to cure that. Om is a mantra, a chant, and this will become clear, I hope, as we go along, which seeks, first of all, to cure the restlessness which has its origins in this, what might be called the dualism of the outer. There's also a dualism of the inner. So, so the bad news is not yet over. But I'm going to come to that slowly, as one should. One shouldn't break bad news immediately, should one? <laughs> so the first part of the bad news is that we are most of our lives immersed in a world of our own creation which might be described as a world of dualism the dualism of the outer. London is out there. India is out there. Only. I'm glad Kathleen has been to, to the India which is out there, but she's also been to the India which is everywhere. And I'm going to call you Kathleen now, if I may. Having properly the first addressed you as Dr. Rain. It comes naturally to me so to address you. And, and, and Keith. Now, uh, Kathleen, uh, the, the India which is out there nearly is also an object both for those who live there and for those who long to be there. 
And may they have that object too in the right ways, of course. Objects are meant to be to be to be received and to be accepted. But if India were only out there, I, I would I would cease to be an Indian. I'm not. I feel completely Indian in London. And if London were only out there, if England were only out there, I would cease to, to love England or fear England if I were in India. I managed to do both, fear and love India, in India and outside India, and, in, and, and so on. That which we love is both where it is and in other places. That which we fear is also everywhere. So whether it is uh, London or Delhi, India or Britain or any part of the world is within us and not merely in the newspapers. No. This is very important to know. When we news the ba- read the bad news of the newspaper, it's happening inside us. In some way or other, it's happening inside us. And the, the good part of this part of bad, the bad news is that it's, the good things are also happening inside us. So if we applaud something which we, good, which we read, I think we will feel a lot better. So the newspaper can also be a sort of mantra occasionally, but that's a very rare occurrence. <laughs> One such mantra was 40 years ago when, uh, when uh, uh, the, the Queen of England was crowned. And I, I, my father drew my attention to... Uh, uh, he was a newspaper editor, and he used, to, he used to read copies of the Times. He said, Ramu, do you do... And he said this not only to me, but to my siblings, that there is a wonderful uh, headline to the Times. It says, All this and Everest too. <laughs> now that, is, that was wonderful. Rather better than the climbing or the conquering of Everest, I think. All this and Everest too is a wonderful description of the, of the world. And I, I'm very grateful uh, that this happened and that, that I'm here in this wonderful country during this anniversary year of the coronation of Her Majesty the Queen. So the bad news is not only that we want objects out there and Om uh, will deal with that, but also that we think that inner objects, we retreat from this in our idealisms, idealisms, in our fantasies, in our ideologies, we invent a world of our own fantasy, an inner world. Not thinking of this as, as, as the, the gift of, of a sacred imagination, but simply as another world of objects, subtle objects. The Mandukya Upanishad, which teaches Om, describes this as the dream world of subtle objects, still objects. The great philosopher Martin Buber once said, condemning things. What are outer things and inner things, but things and things? Now, this is there is wisdom there. The Mandukya Upanishad says the same thing: outer things and our addiction to them, the restlessness which derives from that addiction, from that craving and greed, is only matched by our, by our addiction for the inner things which we create by the unregenerate imagination of our dream life. And for dream here, it's not only that, 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 that difficult, hard-to-remember activity that goes on when we sleep, but it has to do with, with all our fantasy, with all our refusal to, to, to face or seek uh, reality and truth, but to escape from it and, and to create some kind of substitute for it, not an improvement upon it, but a substitute for it. And, and that is an abandonment of reality, but not of objects, not of things, not of addiction, Therefore, not of greed, not of fear, and it is not a, a liberation from restlessness. So, often when we get up in the morning and somebody says, "How did you sleep?" We say, oh, "It was a dreamful, uh, it was a dream-filled night, and I, I was restless." So, dreams don't give us rest. At the end of some some gigantic uh, ideological adventure, uh, 
we, we don't feel that we have had a, a restful time. Now, if collectivism has ended today as an ideology of power and individualism will end in a few more years or decades, we will not think that we have had a restful time. No. These dreams, these fantasies are impositions. They are not confrontations with the truth or reality, but they are an attempt to find a substitute. Likewise, religious fundamentalism. It will not be the, the true sleep of which also the Mandukya Upanishad sleep, but that, that, uh, that uh, greed in relation, whether it is... All, all religions possess this, this character of, of wanting to, to appropriate uh, uh, not the mind or the body, but the soul of people also. And this is also likely to result in restlessness. But I'll come to that in a moment. So, outer objects, inner objects. Om, the first part of Om, the first sound or syllable of Om is A. Ah, but when you say it whole, you can't split it like that. They say, the text says, and commentary says, that this part, as though it can happen in this kind of very neat sort of way. But anyway, it does. Looks after, as you say, Om, and find yourself being established, it does happen, you can try it. In, in, in peace, well, the, the first part, the very opening part deals with that which is most common and recurrent, our greed in relation to, to the dualism of the outer. And the second part, the O part, Om, deals with the, with the dualism of the inner, the, our, our addiction to the objects of our fantasy, to the objects of our ambition in relation to both nature and culture and life and our bodies, and our minds, and so on. But that's not all. This is still bad news, but that's not all. Now, Indian spirituality is very remorseless. It would say, it would go on to say, by way of a gloss on, on this, uh, uh, this thesis of the Upanishad, that the dream world, the world of our addiction to inner objects, the world of, the, of, of dualism, of, of the dualism of the inner, is what we are likely to find even in heavens and hells. Those of us who think that we might find rest in heaven beyond uh, this earth, but who haven't done the sadhana here on earth to find rest there, who haven't chanted Om, or its equivalent in all traditions, who haven't sought truth here, will find in heaven the same kind of dualism of the inner that they find in their dream life, that they find in their, in their life of imposing their fantasies on others. That's is bad news, isn't it? One would have thought that at least in heaven we would find peace. No. But heavens are always described in so many traditions as places, very special places of course, and very mysterious, and not uh, temporal and spatial like ours, but with perhaps a subtler uh, spatial and a subtler temporal dimension, but nevertheless, like, uh, like some of these uh, cinema shows these days with all kinds of sound effects and so on, but you still go out greedy and, and, and full of lust and, and full of need and full of uh, the need for help. And, uh, so they, they're bound to be sages. They're bound to be, oh, of course, absolutely superior lecturers to the ones you encounter here in heaven. But they too would struggle to wean uh, heavenly humanity from the addiction to the dualism of the inner as much as we need to be weaned away from that addiction. So Indian spirituality tends to be very, very remorseless. And of course, for the dualism of the outer, it has nothing but scorn. It has absolute scorn. And this is, is the basis of many a sage turning away from the world. Often this has been escape 
but not always. It has been also a turning of the back, a sort of angry rejection of the mess that we make, of what is otherwise. Look at the, the, the waking world, the world of history, of our waking days, in another way. It is full of reality. Everything is real. But that is not how we see it. A subtle difference. And we are addicted to, 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 to the dualism of the outer. A subtle correction. And we are celebrating everything as real. It's as subtle as that. It, it takes but a fraction of a second to go wrong and to be uh, put back on the right. One can see everything. Sometimes it happens, doesn't it? You wake up and you love the whole world. You're not able to do much about it necessarily immediately, but you see that all this is uh, is uh, is God, or is God's image. A wonderful story suddenly swims into my mind. It's not in my notes, so but I will not let this go. Sri Aurobindo, with whose later philosophy you may or may not agree, I have difficulties with his later developed philosophy, but his experience in uh, in the jail uh, where uh, the British Raj put him for a year, a year's solitary confinement. This is sensitive uh, intellectual who, who, who became a sort of militant uh, nationalist. And he, uh, uh, he found that uh, a lot of people whom he thought uh, he was teaching pure patriotism had, were, were doing terrible things. And he found himself in jail for that. And for a year, then he prayed. That is that the jail made him a yogi. That he had hated many things. He had hated the Raj. He had hated, uh, he had hated the white man. He had uh, hated uh, many things. But in the, in, in the cell, he prayed only to God, to Krishna, who was his chosen form of God. And he writes that one day, the rough blankets, he felt that they were the arms of Krishna. Amazing. He looked around at the other convicts, uh, hardened convicts, murderers, cheats, scoundrels. He found Krishna in all of them. He looked outside his cell at the tree and its, its branches. They looked like the arms of Krishna calling him. Amazing vision. Amazing vision. So that can happen. It, it, it happens to mystics. It happens to poets and lovers. And I think it happens to everyone occasionally. But, uh, but it disappears also like that. Somebody's rude to me on the underground and I see everybody as a horrible person, of course. Needless to say, they think exactly the same of me. But occasionally, suddenly, you find yourself in the most difficult place on the underground. The underground is rather a wonderful metaphor also, isn't it? We're traveling on the underground all the time. Isn't that wonderful? And, uh, but sometimes you find the exits and the entries of the underground and the magic of it, wonderful on the escalator, going up or even going down, you find a strange comradeship. Now that happens sometimes. Now that's when you're seeing the world without duality. You're seeing many things, but without duality. You're seeing external things, but without duality. You're seeing dangerous things, but without duality. You keep a good distance from them. But you are seeing them without duality. You see the drunk, you see the angry man, you see the whore. But you, you maintain a distance of love, not of fear, but of love. And you see somebody in need, and, and you want to help them. Or you want to consider helping them anyway. Whereas before you just wanted to race past them. So these are magical things that happen when we are liberated from the dualism of the outer and also the dualism of the inner. If I think only the Puranic mythology of Hinduism is right and I ignore the, the mythologies of the Aboriginal peoples of the world or of other countries, then I am a victim of a subtle dualism of the inner. 
I prize the inner world of my own culture above the inner world of all other cultures. It's a subtle mistake that happens especially to people who belong to ancient civilizations. There is surely as much truth in an artist's inspired work, an artist who may not have read uh, the Vedas or the Upanishads or the Puranas at all. There may be more, uh, uh, more non-duality of the inner world there than in what I take to be the last and final word about the subtle and magical things which my Puranic tradition has taught me. So, uh, so this is a very difficult thing. I'm not, a, I'm not a, a, a sage. I can't teach you these things. I can only tell you about these things. So, the dualism of the inner. It's, it's very, very much harder to see this. Very, very hard to see this. Artists and, uh, and others often don't see that they are as great uh, uh, in, in, in the, their addiction to, to the inner objects of their dualistic creation is as great as the politicians, uh, uh, as the businessmen's addiction to, to, to populations and, and to the wealth of the world. It's as bad. And often one, they are in the service of these politicians and, and businessmen. That is a very dangerous thing. Now, um, I think there is hope for television, actually. I have come to the conclusion. But I'll tell you why I, I thought at a point there was no hope for it. A little argument. I'm only a philosopher. I'm only full of arguments, full of uh, theories. But I had a theory about why television was bad. I was very proud of it and wanted to appear on television about it. But the theory, <laughs> but the theory was this. The bad, thing, the bad thing about television is that it cuts out conversation. Surely, surely. I mean, I have friends of mine who got married and said, come, come any time and visit us. And you knocked on the door, you no answer. Not because they were making love, they were watching television. And they, <laughs> this is shocking. So the, the bad thing about television is that it cuts out conversation, totally. Now, here is the paradox and the beginning of, of, of an argument. The better a television program, the more effectively it will cut out conversation. So, the better television gets, the worse it is for it. Now, nothing can be good if it, is, if it is worse for it to be better. Therefore, television is bad. QED, and I thought I should appear on television. But that's, well, there is some truth in this, you know, some dark truth in it. That it's condemned. I think the reason why television condemns itself to mediocrity is because it secretly knows this argument. <laughs> It wants to distract conversation only just enough to enable you to go on wanting to watch it. If it were to achieve this aim totally effectively, you might not want to watch television. So I think that probably is a good explanation of the necessary mediocrity of all television. But why do I say this? I think the reason I say this is that the world of contemporary art too can, can be liberated from this addiction, from this addiction to mediocrity. Because it would, it, it would, it, that also, I think it, like television, a lot of art uh, today uh, tends to destroy the life of the imagination, really. Like television cuts out, the more effective it is, the more effectively it cuts out the life of the imagination. This is absolutely not true of some very great art. I saw a retrospective of, of Georges Rouault's great early paintings the other day. I, I was so entranced. But they, they, were, they, they were there without any fuss, without any noise, without any propaganda. They were there and they, they, they filled my heart with love. 
that came out. But so much of, of what is called art in the electronic sense, it, it, it destroys my imagination. But there's no reason that it should. I'm sure it's possible to see, oh, I can see the possibility of very great art on that silly screen. It's possible. May it happen. Who knows? But, so there are dangers and there are opportunities. In our waking life, the same politicians, the same uh, 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 industrialists who exploit the earth today might do something else. If only they could see, like Hanuman did, to know that they were going to scorch, to, to scorch their, 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 they were going to burn their, uh, their jaws and, and, and chins, and this is not right, and it's, it's just not worth it. So let's, let's hope uh, Hanuman and Om uh, would liberate us from the addictions of the outer and the inner. But that's not all. We are still in the realm of anxiety, a favorite affliction of, uh, a favorite, a recurrent affliction of, of people in the modern world, isn't it? Anxiety. Anxiety. We're anxious during our waking life and we sleep and we wake up anxious. Anxiety. Anxiety. But surely there is the flip side of it. It's called depression. And there are drugs for both, aren't there? Horrible drugs, I think. But these are horrible conditions too. They're horrible in their effects. The reason they're horrible in their effects, I think, is that I think the medical profession here, and that includes all its con- the consumers of its products, has not understood what the Mandukya Upanishad teaches, I think. That there is a third danger. That when our addiction to the outer and our addiction to the inner has failed to bring us peace, we will seek the addiction of death and of destruction. This is the third uh, piece of bad news. And that is the, I think, if I may propound a theory, I'm only a philosopher, that is if, uh, if the roots of anxiety, even clinically understood anxiety, are the restlessness of dualism, then the roots of depression, even clinically understood depression, might be the temptation of death, of nothingness, of sleep as a blankness. Let's get there. And this, of course, has, has its equivalence in outer life, doesn't it? All the, the weaponry, all the bombs, and all, all the, the, the poison, and all the hate that we go on producing is secretly intended to destroy the whole thing, surely, because our addiction to the outer and to the inner is failing very, very rapidly. This is very bad news indeed. I, I, I would really think that uh, I shouldn't be smiling at all uh, when I say this. No, I think this is very bad news, but I think it's there. This secret self-destructiveness of individuals and of nations and of races and of religions, I think, has its, has its foundation in, in, this, um, in this truth that uh, if we uh, are uh, only addicted to the inner as opposed to the outer, then this will not help us and we will want to, to die and to, to kill. Now the Mandukya Upanishad uh, seeks to come to our aid even here. This little three-syllabled syllable seeks to come to Somebody said the other day that they were terrified that, that truth might lie in three short syllables. But falsehood can lie in that one sound no of rejection. So why not truth in a similar brief sound? Om is a powerful yea saying. It's the very opposite of all no. It, it's not a, an invitation to say no to a smaller thing, but to say yes to a wider thing. So if we are to renounce the dualism of the outer, we must embrace the non-duality of the outer. 
the non-duality of India and Britain, of Europe and Asia, of Hinduism and Islam, of X and Y. If we are to escape the duality of our addiction to one and our hatred for the other, or so on. So the R sound is not merely saying, don't do that, otherwise your addiction will grow deeper. Hmm? I must tell again the story of the sadhu, this holy man, whom I saw a long time ago when I used to have a drink problem. Notice the past tense again, please. <laughs> I, but I, 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 was, I, I looked at the sadhu and I, I, I thought he was drinking something very special and I, I, I needed to know about that. So I asked him, I said, uh, uh, sir, what do you drink? He laughed and he said, oh, I am drunk with the names of God, the chanting, the names of God. Now that was the, the wider yes saying, the wider affirmation. He was saying, is this, what is inebriation? You call this getting high? This is rubbish. Get high on, on, on truth. Now, I, I think that is what the Upanishad is doing, what Om is doing. The ah sound, the beginning of speaking and its elongation. It doesn't die. It, it elong, elongates. It becomes, it, 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 it intervenes. It, it stretches. Ah, ooh. And that's what the Upanishad says. The, the mediating uh, syllable, ooh. The initiating syllable, ah. And the concluding. It's always time to, to stop also. It ends very briefly, ma. With a sweet sound with which the word mama begins. Ma, ma, stops. So it, it is a way of dealing with rest also. The ah sound deals with the addiction to, to the outer, the oo sound with the addiction to the inner, and the ma sound with the sweetness of, of consummation, of even cessation, of calling it a day. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Call it a day. So that another day might begin. So that an, a night might intervene. So there might be this pause of rest that is ma, om, in that three syllables of sanity. It, it brings to rest the restlessness of the mind in its addiction to the outer, in its addiction to the inner, and in its panicky uh, uh, retreat into annihilation. Regenerate waking, my notes say. Regenerate waking. That is the non-duality of the outer. The rejection of the outer uh, for the sake of the inner or for some other reason is clearly wrong. I'm beginning to learn. My, my guru, Ramana Maharshi, never taught that one should reject the outer. Somebody came to him and, <clears throat> and said, Master, I want to renounce my home. He said nothing at all in answer to such a, a, a pathetic question. But then when he, he said, but if you really wanted to, you would have done so. <laughs> and that, that was a cruel answer. But he was saying that, no, that's not what you want. And then when a slightly less cruel answer, no, 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 equally cruel answer was, he said, somebody said, I want to go to the forest. Then he said, but you want to destroy the peace of the forest? <laughs> you will take your anxieties and worries with you to the forest? What a wonderful ecological lesson that, huh? <laughs> so, to reject the outer is a mistake. But to see in the outer the same truth that you are, that God is, to see there the divine, the, the, the truth that is the invitation of Om, of uh, Mandukya. It doesn't have to be chanted with your eyes closed or eyes open but it makes no difference but it, you, your eyes have to be open to the truth. That truth is not only outside or inside. 
but can be everywhere and can be obscured everywhere on earth, in heaven and in hell in, uh, in secularism and in religion regenerate dreaming of course a regenerate idealism that would seek not to impose but to compare I mean, think of utopias that consult one another it's never happened think of ideologies that seek to learn from one another I've always maintained that this, and this is bad news again, what a mixture of good and bad news I'm delivering. I apologize, I sound like a news, news, uh, 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 news announcer, I mean, that's what they do. But <clears throat> when the atom bomb was dropped, and before that the atom was split, now this is an activity in the realm of the outer of so staggering an importance for human understanding Atomic theory is not only Greek, it's very beautiful and Greek too, but it's also very beautiful and Indian and Adivasi. Now when you're dealing with, with a conception and a reality of such subtlety, and when you want to invade it, surely the utopianism of science and technology should have sought to consult the utopianism of other cultures on this subject. Wouldn't, I think it would have diffused the Second World War if invitations had gone out to the Aboriginal peoples of the world to meet in all the capitals to discuss this strange possibility. Certainly Mr. Hitler would not have understood what was going on at all. He might have become so confused, he might have abdicated. That would have been good news. But I think this is, this is I do really think that we have simply not used the resources of humor and embarrassment against tyrants. We never do that. As somebody, I mentioned this the other day, so forgive me. I was so thrilled when I went to a meeting not long ago, and there was somebody who got up and asked a very rude and filthy question, and the chairman, in, in that wonderful north, northern accent, said, sit down and shut up. That's, that's enough. And the man sat down and shut up. <laughs> I think that, that that is a wonderful way of doing But what I mean by that is, somebody have, should, should have said this to the atom splitters of the world. Kathleen, you, you were very young then, but somebody uh, should have said, a poet, uh, a woman and a mother and a scholar like yourself, sit down and shut up. <laughs> but this was not done. So think of utopias, think of ideologies, think of imaginations that want to consult one another, that, that want to sit with one another. That is regenerate dreaming. That is the wonderful ooh sound of Om. Regenerate sleep, not the drugged sleep of uh, of uh, of our times, not the sleep of of hard uh, heartedness as in India, where we turn our backs on the real problems of human beings. We sleep soundly, forgetting the the, the inhumanity that lies outside our own homes. That is drugged sleep too, drugged with a false interpretation of religion. That is as bad as any drugs that people take here. The hard-heartedness of the educated India. Gandhi was asked in, in the 30s, which is the biggest problem of India? And uh, the reporter thought he would say, oh, whatever, the British Raj. He said, the hard-heartedness of the educated Indian. And I think that persists in our ability to say, oh, it's all right, it's, it's their fate. It, it is not. That is also unregenerate sleep the unregenerate darkness. So drugging, chemically, or morally, or philosophically, or ideologically, is not what 
Om is referring to. The ma, the sound of quiescence, is not an invitation to, to, to that kind of drugged uh, uh, anotherness of love. It is, it is that mystery of giving, giving yourself a rest, saying, yes, what about you? And, 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 and so on. It's really listening, waiting upon. That is the ma. And of course, all the, if we were to do that, we would of course sleep very well at night. I was in America the first time, Kathleen, and I, I walked in New York, such a beautiful city. You both praised and, and you both condemned and loved it the other day. And so did I. I walked and walked and walked and walked. And I felt that everyone was being able to do, to realize their dream. If they wanted to jog in the afternoon, they were jogging in the afternoon. If they wanted to sing at night, they were. The, American dream, the trouble with the American dream was that it had come true, that nobody was dreaming. The idea that every dream was meant to be realized is a foolish idea. That is where ma, the, 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 the quiescent part of truth, is very important. Dream. Put an end to it. It will realize itself. Sleep now. Let it be. You don't have to conquer the whole world. You don't have to, have to extract every last bit of nature's secret. Leave, leave it mysterious, as you would your beloved. You would want to know everything about her. Love nature. She will reveal her secrets to you. But don't extract all information from her. If you do that, you will sleep, you will dream, and you will, of course, be wide awake too. Now I'm going to, to want to, to, to bring this to, uh, to an end, this, this lecture, by doing something ambitious. I'm not going to uh, suddenly sleep uh, or, or dream. Uh, but I want to suggest, as a very dull philosopher, it's my business as a philosopher, as a theologian to try and help with scholarship and understanding the great, the great divide that has come uh, between religious traditions and between all religious traditions and secular thought. So here is an ambitious attempt. The attempt, the ambitiousness is not mine. It is the ambitiousness of the Upanishad. I would want to suggest that Om, the chanting of Om, and the meaning of its three syllables and the, the nature of what these syllables mean, the waking, the dream, the sleep, that this whole thing suggests a typology, a mode of classification of religions which might be helpful. I'm not suggesting that it's the only typology. The, the London Underground brings out this map. That's one good map, but it's not the only map. I've often ignored that map and it still got to, to my destination. And I followed that map and hopelessly failed to get, my, get to my destination. So I'm not insisting that what I'm about to propose to you is the one and only map of the religious realm, but it is one good map which follows from the Upanishad, from Om. There is, in all religious traditions, the mystical stream. That stream where the seer, the sage, has basically wanted to say, it is, truth is and has not wanted to put a form to it or even to add an attribute to it. It is. I suggest that this is the truth of the whole of Om when it is fallen silent, but it is powerfully represented in regenerate sleep. 
in the wonderful way in which sages and good people do not interfere with reality but reveal it. Deep sleep. I'm here thinking of the regenerate form of it. Don't forget. Is like silence. It is without greed. It is without fear. And the shape of it is abstract form. I want to make a, a, a suggestion, Kathleen, uh, uh, which comes from my tradition, that the great monotheistic traditions, often when they have wanted to talk about, now don't be upset, you can disagree with me, but I'm making a proposal for what it's worth, that the formless in a certain context has actually been abstract form. That the true formless is the formless of the mystics of those traditions. But of the devotees, it is like the abstract form of deep sleep, of silence. It is not entirely without form because it, it breaks into speech again. It is discontinuous. Now, so deep sleep is a wonderful image of that super abstract form. Of uh, ultimate reality as envisioned in devotional Judaism, devotional Christianity. Christianity is a special case, Islam, and in, in, in the monotheistic parts of the Vedic religion, Sikhism. I would see in deep sleep each day, if when I've slept well, I would like to say, ah, I've had some sense of the, the abstract form of divinity. Not its formlessness, no. That is reserved only for the sage, for the mystic. But for me, this is enough. It is neither the gross external form nor the subtle internal form. It is neither of these. It is a more abstract. I think it is a hunger of the, 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 the present world. It might be fed if this, this doctrine were developed. So I suggest the following typology, that one brings together the ultimate reality of devotional monotheism under the rubric of the abstract form of deep sleep, the mer part. And now this is not something available only in deep sleep. At all times, in our waking and in our dreaming life, we bring ourselves into obedience under this vast abstract form of God, which is neither gross as in this world, nor subtle as in the world of angels, but something abstract. Now this brings a whole range of religious traditions together, I suggest. But the, 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 the full home, of course, brings a whole range of, of uh, mystical traditions together. Then you have religious traditions where ultimate reality is with form and with attributes. There are religious traditions, both Aboriginal and, and uh, medieval and ancient and contemporary, which see gods and goddesses, which see all, all manner of forms everywhere. Now, I think they are the celebration this faith, this tradition is imaged in, uh, in the waking, in the dream and in the sleep state that there is only form, abstract form or concrete form, gross or subtle. The Adivasis, the aboriginals, have understood all three states and have celebrated all the forms and all the attributes. Now, deep sleep does have an attribute. It, it gives birth to, to waking and to dreaming. But it, it is the celebration of the totality. I 
would say here we have Adivasi traditions, we have the Pauraniga Hindu traditions, and we have other traditions. So in a way this exhausts the thing, but it doesn't. Because if you think of ultimate reality as without form and without attribute, that is the mystical apex of all traditions. The devotional religion, where we are not mystics, for us the, the abstract form, which is neither gross nor subtle, would do. But if we are the, the celebratory uh, aboriginal inhabitants of the earth and their descendants, we would celebrate everything. But there would be no conflict between these two because they are drawing upon the same recurrent daily experience. But one category remains. Mightn't ultimate reality be not only what the mystic says of all traditions, namely without form and without attribute, what the devotee and, and the, the celebrator of all traditions says, that, uh, 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 sorry, what the dev devotee says, that this, this abstract form, neither gross nor subtle, nor uh, with form, with attribute, but with form, Without attribute, consider this, please. I, 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 I beg of you to, 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 to think of it. With form, without attribute. Now there is really, this is an empty category. And I think this is where music belongs. This is where morality belongs. This is where speaking belongs. This is where love belongs. When we speak... Every part of speaking is speaking. With music, every portion of music is music. With right action, every part of it is right action. It has form. It has no attributes. So I suggest this is regenerate secularism, if you like. The sacredness denied there. But if it could concentrate on the form of music, mathematics, the abstract, and of right living, ethically and ecologically sensitive life on earth, it would discover its companionship with all the other sacred traditions, the mystical, the, the abstract, and the concrete. Now, of course, it's not neat like that. One goes into the other. But I suggest that a simple, uh, the simple chanting of Om, the reason it gives even an unquiet philosopher like me rest, is not only because it answers, for me, many questions of our times, but it answers, for me, a question of my own vocation as a philosopher. Can this help me, not only to understand, but to love all the traditions of the world? And my answer, as very clumsily outlined just now, is, yes, it does. It helps me very personally, and also as a, as a member of the human species at this point in time. It, it makes me very grateful to, for what this little girl called me, uh, uh, Om Mama. So if I could be, uh, could, could be true to that uh, expectation of a little child and help my, my own uh, uh, professional understanding of these matters also, and not only the, the general uh, uh, questions uh, which trouble all of us, I would feel that I have been truly blessed I had some other thoughts which I have forgotten because I'm in the quiescent part of Om now. And I am very, very grateful to you for your very patient listening.
questions all. Of course. Yeah. This is your last opportunity to to put your profound questions to this yes. wonderful I I leave you rest to one second. Yes. Okay. A question would be could you if, if it is possible in a very simple and uh, in, imagine in, with an, an image way um, uh, um, tell us what you mean with seeing without gravity. I would really, you know, I would love to leave the scene here with a very precise yes. of that meaning. Yes. If it is possible to say, you know, yes. yes. in a few words. Uh, I think so. Well, but you know, a few words with me always tend to be more than a few words. I, I will try and respond to that very important question. You know, uh, I asked myself this question uh, some, some years ago, precisely this, what is that very simple image? And I found the answer in, in what, we, what happens when we actually look at one another as opposed to staring at one another or as opposed to running away from one another. Just consider this. When we look at one another, we do it in a deflecting sort of way. I don't see you as an object. You don't see me as an object. I don't even see you as nothingness, but something in between. If I were to look at your eyes like that, I would be an ophthalmologist examining your eyes. But I, I both look and don't look at your eyes. When I look at your eyes. But looking at one another is a matter, for, isn't it? So that is a very powerful image of an acceptance of externality without duality. If it were really duality, I would never cease to stare. But I, I don't look. It's a way of saying it is not other than me, although it is there. If it were sheer otherness that was involved in seeing you, I would never be able to take my eyes off the object that I was seeing. It doesn't mean that I would deny it and close my eyes in some kind of retreat either. It's very interesting that the, the popular photographs of sages and gods and goddesses in India, you wanted a concrete image, didn't you? Uh, show them with half-closed eyes. It's a way of saying it's, it's, it's not inner or outer, it's, it's, a, it's a style of seeing. Okay? But I think it's to be found in our ordinary looking at one another, which is not staring at... Here, of course, in England, nobody makes eye contact, so you walk very frightenedly all the time. <laughs> but that's another matter. But when I, when I thought I was merely going to enjoy the act of looking at one another, people, people stared at me, and so they thought I was going to attack them. Because, but that's the other danger. In India, we, we, we tend to treat everybody as a wonderful object to stare at, but that's the other extreme. But in between, in between, both in India and here, is also to be found, mercifully, the, the simple ability to look at one another without staring, without... Um, without uh, feasting, but looking at one another in that light way of, of continuous uh, uh, movement and withdrawal. It's a magic thing. Holding hands uh, when it is uh, the holding hands of love and not of, uh, 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 of, of something else is a bit like that, isn't it? When, when we, it's, a, it's a touch, it's a, it's a grasping, but it's not a... a, a the word um, you, you don't you, you, you don't tie your hands up you, 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 shaking hands can be a wonderful image of that 
something like that. But I, 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 would, I think what we need is a whole range of such images. And here are there's only a few. Yes? Uh, you say that by this sort of objective observation in a way, that it helps you to be less judgmental. I'm putting it in very concrete terms. Is that in a way... Yes, yes, of course. Morality, yes, morality is right at the end. What is morality? if it is not a, a, the non-dual way of seeing. Morality is a matter of seeing others as yourself. But it is a matter of seeing others also. You must see others as yourself. You must not see them. That is non-dual seeing. You must acknowledge the there-ness or the here-ness of things. But as yourself, as the self. And that does lead to that, that very magic style of being which all creatures have, not only human creatures. They don't know that in, when they look at one another, they are sages, we don't know this. But this is why the eyes of my guru are the most beautiful eyes that I know. They, they, they look at you, and there's a very wonderful uh, line in a great uh, uh, Islamic uh, mystics poem in, uh, who was from Delhi, uh, 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 our friend Mr. Hussain, the ex-ambassador of our country, would would know this line: "Chaputilak sabachinire mose nena milake." So this this sage says of his guru that by looking at my eyes, he's removed all the marks of caste and distinction, but just looking at me with love. And what is the ultimate caste? Self and other. So that distinction between self and other is, is destroyed when we look at one another. Truly consider this. For a moment it is. We lapse back into the duality. But for the sage, it is a permanent realization. They would look at everyone in that way all the time. This could mean hard decisions. I don't know about judgmental entirely. This would not mean an inability, an incapacity to judge. No but to judge with the judgment of love. Which might require uh, sternness, mind you, because if I see the other as myself, then I might want to be punished. But it can't really be too much because I don't, wouldn't want to be destroyed. So there would have to be a... I think there is always, in, in what might be called the politics of love, just the right balance between judgment and irresponsibility. Certainly, but love is also always prejudiced in its own way, isn't it? <laughs> I'm only trying to play games. Well, that would be a theory, sir, but I think the, the syllables, without the syllables, there would be no origins. Let me put it like this, and I'm not trying to evade your question. Often we ask, in, uh, in, in a spirit of inquiry, what is the origin of, of, say, a sacred sound? But my response to that is, without the sacred sound, there would have been no origin of anything. So there is no origin of Om, because Om is the origin of all things. And by that I don't mean only this precise sound, 
but om would also be variations on itself like all great music is so any true non-dual speaking is om that is the origin and the middle and the end of everything so i might uh, uh, think of a possible theory but the origins of all theories lie in om what is a theory it is a mode of understanding something, isn't it? That would also have to be non-dual. There is a, <coughs> there is a duality of, inter, in, of the intellect also, which seeks the things of the object as other than itself. So all theories have their origin in Om. The, the theory of Nada has its origin in Nada. Without the, with the wisdom of love, there would be no theory. Without the wisdom of Om, without the, the wisdom of, of non-duality, there would be no existence, no theory, no life. So uh, while I entirely support inquiries into the historical, the, the anthropological sort of basis of this, but I would want such inquiries to, uh, to be symbolic of something deeper. Would that then be primordial sound? Primordial sound, of course, but primordial not in time long ago but primordial as source, which is there each time we speak, and which must have been there long ago, of course. But that long ago would not have been possible without it. With, with what is there to the point of self-forgetfulness the scientist is so fascinated by, by his theories and discoveries he's become an idolater of the universe he's forgot himself it's a very subtle danger at the heart of contemporary science I mean the new science also I don't mean that he she, or she should turn into their own mind and look at uh, not only that that's also an addiction perhaps in some forms of psychology. But to see both lightly, the, the inner image and the outer object, and, and to discover the self in both. But you can't do that if you, if you forget yourself. It is almost as though subjectivity is not subjectivity. Okay. It's not subjectivity. It's the, 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 there is an important difference between the notion of the self and subjectivity, unfortunately, look, a lot of this has to do with, with vocabulary. It has come to mean the inner world. But that's not what I have, that's not what the Upanishad is saying. The self, or the subject, if you like, as opposed to the subjective, the real as opposed to the objective, that is, uh, that, is that should be our quarry, because that is ourselves. But it's an important question. It's a very important question. It goes to the heart of what, uh, the question of what is wrong with what's happening. And but I think the correct answer to this may not lie where appearances are. Dr. Gandhi, 
Yes. Um, those of us in the West who are interested in Indian spiritual teaching can find it very confusing living here as we do in London. We find ourselves caught up perhaps first in this school and then in another school and in one cult and then in another cult. We are told to repeat this and then somebody comes and says, no, no, we must repeat that. <laughs> and then an Indian teacher comes from India and says, ah, oh, you might just as well repeat Coca-Cola, he says. Yes. And then you begin to wonder, really, um, where you are to look and what authority you are to take. I don't know whether you have anything you can say about that. Wonderful question. I'm so glad you asked this question, sir. Because those who say this, they may or may not be advertising Coca-Cola, but they're certainly not teaching Indian spirituality. Because they are now addicted to the outer form of their own teaching. You see, they, I could become addicted to what, what, what might in fact be a true uh, interpretation. They would also, it would always have to be made fresh in, in a continuous spiritual inquiry and in the continuous process of living with love. If, if, if such a teacher really loved their audience, they wouldn't say this, would they? No. They would want to say, well, let's look at any speaking. There shouldn't be an addiction even to the sound Om. Of course not. Because Om is a dramatization of, of any sound uttered without duality and with love. It could be Coca-Cola even. But why look for the sound Coca-Cola to make this point? There are dangers there, surely. Why not look, look for, for the other sounds like hello? We say hello to everyone. And I'm sure these words are sacred in their original uh, meanings, of course. But uh, they are all sounds of non-dual greeting. The, what, some of the first things we do when we wake up. But we also must re recognize that our eye also greets the, the, the world when we look out of our window. There is a way of non-grasping way of, of seeing and a non-shutting way of not seeing. And that is also a mode of saying hello. Uh, children are good at it and poets are good at it. But all of us do it, certainly. I think that would be the correct way to go along. But I think at the heart of the worry that you have expressed is the failure of the imagination and the failure of the heart on the part of teachers who have become addicted even to the uh, form of the true teaching. But that serves the ego. That does not serve the teaching. No. I'm so glad you've asked that question, sir. If I could add to that, one of the, as I understand it, the differences between chanting Coca-Cola and chanting Om is that in Sanskrit, the art Om is uh, technically, phonetically, a uh, sound that starts as deep and back within the body as possible, the art Om and physically it comes out it's a very good and easy and resonant sound to 
repeated to Kyle, apart from what one might be feeling. Is that correct? I would want to say uh, yes and no. Of course it's correct. But one can become addicted to the sonorousness of the sound of one's own deep breathing. That's the subtle mistake then. Whereas uh, this little girl said, Oh, said it with all her heart. <laughs> and there are also sacred sounds like Krishna, which don't come from that deep kind of physiological space. And yet they, they have led to ecstatic and loving lives. So I, I, I think there is truth in what you say. But I think physiology here is only an aid and an image of depth. There could be depth in, in that om sound and there could be the superficiality of vanity in that deep-throated uh, or, or deep-breathed uh, 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 sound, whatever. But I, you know, I, it's very important for me to try and do this as, as a friend, really, of uh, those who have come to this. I, I don't want to discourage these inquiries. But please, 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 there are dangers here. To set up an institute for the inquiry of, in, into the connection between breathing and, would be wonderful, but it could be done humorously. And, and during vacation, perhaps, and not during time. <laughs> 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 then my question is, what I think so, absolutely. Om has those physiological advantages, but uh, if you can't do this, if you are in a place, then you should, you should say something, anything that comes to your mind, which is suggestive of love and of care, uh, anything that you have grown up with, don't abandon that. Don't abandon it. My, my teacher never asked anybody to abandon the mantras of their own tradition and childhood. No. If you've grown up with Jesus or with, uh, with Allah, that is your mantra. If you've not grown up even with that, if you've grown up with mummy and daddy, those are your mantras. But detach them from the objectivity or subjectivity merely of mummy and daddy. Try and... Uh, actually, this did happen in America. Parents, another kind of yes... I went to them and said, well, can you please teach our child to pray? Now, that, that is a very great responsibility. I said, I can't. Then I just talked to the child and said, well, when you go to sleep, say goodnight to the sky. And when you get up in the morning, say hello, good morning. That's, that, they, that child seemed happy about it. Good morning is a beautiful word. Good is such a beautiful word. Look at any word. Say that. Say, say good. Good is such a beautiful word. Say, say, use, use those words with which have a meaning but which do not become fixed in that meaning. Take the word and, it occurs so brilliantly and beautifully in the Bible. And, and, and. It's like the oo of the om, the, the mediating sound and. If one could keep saying and, it's a wonderful way of upsetting, uh, 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 you know, finalities. And. <laughs> <laughs> like that that come to come to and sometimes they what the Buddha taught just watch your breathing you can't even do that and and he, he taught that don't force your breathing into some kind of majestic pattern let it be as it is difficult short quick watch it and sometimes uh, pollution doesn't enable us to, to do anything else but, but no my, my, my serious answer to your question is uh, uh, 
choose with a discrimination a sound which uh, which is loving which is uh, if if it can also be deep breathing wonderful if not let it be loving let it be familiar but detach it from uh, addiction from things and things merely attach it to all things if you can Yes, I left the hand at the back. I just had a point from anyone who knows any Japanese in here. You know, the Japanese syllabary is 48 sounds from ai, ue, or kaki, kuke, kosashi, suse, so mami. goes straight through to the letter N, and the word N in Japanese is interchangeable with M. So when we sit um, in the spiritual practice, I do, we sing kamu nagara tamahichi haimase, which means as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. The M and the N are very close. So the founder of this spiritual practice, we've just seen his daughter up at the airport, which is about yeah. um, You know, she could go right through Ayu Oyokaki, could go through the whole 48 gods in a circle, and it always ends up with N, which is just the form of the Japanese form of N. And they see N as joining from the earth up to the heaven. As in so many things Japanese, I find that what touches me is the spirit and not the ingenuity of it. Really. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there, there, is, there, there is a spirit there of, of, uh, but if one were to think of this as an enormously clever thing to have you're not thinking of, of it like that but supposing somebody would say how wonderful to have I, that would be precisely the beginning of a big mistake yes, yes. <laughs> but the other interesting thing is that the U sound softens the A or any lengthened vowel in a Japanese uh, I don't know who oh, have known some very hardening U oh, sounds oh, really oh. I, I know, but there again, this is so fascinating. Oh, look, far be it for me to discourage this kind of inquiry. Really, I'm very bad at it. I think that's the reason. I, 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 I both like what you're saying very much, but I don't know. I'm such a spoiled sport this evening, Kathleen. <laughs> I, don't, I, I want to stick to the one thing this evening that I see clearly, this little voice which keeps saying to me, Ramu, spoil premature understandings of yourself and of others, of these very difficult truths. The, the, it must be more complicated than, than uh, phonetics. It must be deeper than physiology. It must be cleverer than theology. It's all I... You know, the, the, the angel or the devil in me today is saying, spoil, spoil. <laughs> can, you, can you forgive me? I'm, I'm also saying spoil, spoil. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. I, I take that. I've come straight from Japan. You, you, you have... <laughs> You have spoiled the symmetry of, of many of the things that I was thinking, and I'm grateful to you for that. But there's no idolatry of the simple either. The complex must also be attended to with patience. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yes. I, I will think about it. The Sanskrit word for uh, uh, self is aham. Ahamkar is ego. Self is aham. A is the first letter of the alphabet. Ha is the last. So he just brings the first and the last letter together to yield the mantra. Aham. Ahamkara is, is, is the very opposite. It's ego. Aham is the first and the last. 
inclusive in that sense, not exclusive, but uh, so close to, to danger, because I think that it, truth must be close to where danger is. How else would danger be helped or overcome? I think this is... So, it, while it sounds bad that ahamkar should be so close to aham, it's good for ahamkar. <laughs> Well, the beauty of, of Japanese uh, uh, lifestyles, yes, of course, there's beauty. Wherever there's beauty, there is non-duality, absolutely, yes. Because beauty has a lot to do with the senses, doesn't it? It is really the sadhana of looking but not grasping, of touching but not destroying. It is entirely, it is the spiritual sadhana of, of taking enormous risks with both internal and external things. And it, it may well be the transformation of duality into non-duality, which is perhaps the most widely inherited capability of human beings. Could be because everyone is able to to do that at some point or other in their speaking or doing or living, and the greatest of course do it in, in wonderful ways. But uh, I'm sure there is perhaps in the pursuit of truth there have been greater dangers of addiction than in the celebrations and creations of beauty. I make a generalization here. I mean, nothing quite like the dualistic addictions of science and psychology has occurred in the arts yet. Perhaps not. But, uh, because there are always ways, for instance, when science goes wrong, there's nothing that I know which can correct it at that level. When something goes wrong with the art, I know many beautiful things that I, I too can do. And I know that that's not it. That's not love. That's not, that's not beauty. That's, that's not art. I can say that. I can raise my little hand and say, no, that can't be right. But when, when something goes wrong with science, I know no science. Or in theology, for that matter. When something goes subtly wrong with theology, which is an abstruse thing, addictive in, in, in certain sorts of ways, then the average uh, uh, faithful per person of faith cannot say, no, 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 because they don't know the... But this doesn't, it's not discouragement to theology or to science, but I think that the dangers with beauty are perhaps, and with morality, uh, are perhaps with speaking even are less. Although I, I find both in India and in England, if I may now really start being nasty, uh, a, a profound deterioration of speech in, in, in the 30th, when I first came here, and, and in India, it, it's collapsing. The, the natural ability of people to speak with enjoyment and communication and mystery and patience. Well, I, I used to love, when I first arrived in this land, Kathleen, 30 years ago, I, it, was, it was like coming to the source of the sound of the English language that I'd heard in India. I used to stop and ask questions, just hear native speaking. <laughs> I tried to do that the other day with disastrous consequences. <laughs> because they thought I wanted something. No, I didn't. But I mean that. There is, uh, to, the, to the art of speak, everyone who speaks, speaks beautifully. It's a bit like the Newton's first law. Everyone who speaks, speaks beautifully unless they have been interfered with by something. 
When Wordsworth spoke of the language spoken by ordinary men, he was certainly not thinking of modern television democratic, yes. because there was something primordial about the speech of people who have inherited from the ancestors who lived in one place always, and speech is dignified. In, in the Hebrides, they speaks to a Gaelic, and I was told by Lighthouse Keeper and his wife that, it's commonly said, um, Gaelic is the language spoken in paradise. And of course, this is true not only of that language, but of all primordial <coughs> speech. Yes. And yes. you still get it in Scotland, where yes. they love the language and enjoy it, and read it as times you love being insulted yes. or sentimental, and indeed in Ireland, but the English don't love the English anymore. Don't generalize, Kathleen. I speak as a poet. Yes, but I, I can see your pain, but I, I've heard very beautiful. A native English speech here. Also, I was only thinking of the the, the, the places where it seems to me to have deteriorated. I had such a wonderful cheerio last night from a Scot Scotsman. Cheerio, <laughs> said such a delightful sound. Cheerio, it really meant that. <laughs> well, think of the blues. I mean, that is probably your speech. That is the speech of Egypt. When it comes from the depth. Yes. The, the, what what makes language deteriorate is not being loved by people. <laughs> Yes. I'm so glad there's at least one person who's taken an interest in, in that. I brought here a deep sleep as a wonderful form of the abstract yes. form. Yes. And then I brought hmm. a form, but without attributes. And, you know, that's another note. Yes. And um, <laughs> I. Yes, I, 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 I It's just something that, you know, I think it's a very interesting, um, you know, it's difficult to comprehend. Yes. Because as an artist, you know, we, we use the word abstract a lot. Yes. And what we mean by it yes. is everything that an artist does, if they're interpreting the world out there, is an abstraction, even if it's realistic. Yes, yes. Because it's not the thing itself. Okay. So, for you, the, mm -hmm. the way we use it, Yes. I basically had in mind the idea of the non-concrete, the non-representational, which also has uh, yes. added in the understanding yes. of the abstract. But the deep sleep, you see, it's the, this Upanishad, for instance, as, as members of my class would uh, would remember, it, it, I think the, in verse 6, it is suddenly so seduced by deep sleep that it sings oh, it praises of it. So that is the Lord. That is, but seventh verse says something else. But there is... Now I'm beginning to understand that that celebration has to do with the form, that there is here an abstract form, so unlike, not like any of the gross forms, and not like any of the subtle forms in heaven either. And yet with form, because we wake up to, to have form. So we don't really know what the form is, we just know it has form, but we can't give it actually. That's, that's what I mean by not this, not this concrete or subtle thing. Other than that, and yet it is. But it is not strict formlessness, because if it were, it would never be out of it. Mm -hmm. Say that again. 
the strict formless is that which which simply is or which we are without action and we are always that which we are but we are in sleep and we come out of it so that is not the abiding eternal uh, reality no. I've called it the abstract form and I take my position with the mystics here I think the, the, the devotional uh, the ultimate uh, object of devotion is is not the, the mystical it is that also comes and goes because many people are not devotees let's face it but there's nobody who is unaware that they are so that which abides is the indubitable knowledge that one is and I would add that there is something vast within which all that is is and that is it, that is all that is the attributes yes 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 no the I am is, is without form and without attributes it is without form because it's not the body which comes and goes that I am that I am is without form without attributes but this is theology, of course, know, important theology, and I'm glad you connected with art. I it, it, no, I, 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 it is meant uh, to be. Uh, it's a sort of, to me, it's a sort of. Look, um, like take this room. Let me give you an, an analogy. Take this room. Now, there are objects in this room which have shape, but this room itself is not an object among other objects, is it? It is not. I would say there is a distinction between the form of that room and the form of all objects within it because it is not a form among other forms. It is that within which there are... So the, the form of deep sleep is a bit like in relation to all. Uh, deep sleep generates both uh, our wakefulness and our dreams, doesn't it? We wake up from... So it's like all the objects here, human and non-human, within this room. They have some kind of form. But the form of this room is different. So I'm suggesting that the, the, the god of the, the devotee is a bit like the room within which there are all forms. But uh, if I could discover uh, that in myself, which is the room, that which I am, which you are, that I think would be the, the, the Om, the, the Turiya, the Atman of uh, the Upanishad and of many any other texts of mystical spirituality. But this is, this is really to, 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 to indeed to stimulate the kind of debate which you have started. And I introduced it right at the end because I felt that I, uh, <clears throat> I must also express my, my debts to this Upanishad in a purely professional, personal way. Because if this doesn't touch my life as a professional philosopher, it would, I would feel that something is missing, only as an example really. It's very important for, for my subject to be guided by the Upanishad. If I were, you know, I, 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 when I say, I, that's how I live. I, I should be guided in my work as a philosopher and a theologian by this. Yes. I found that very interesting. I, I had an experience that I had to exercise sort of muscles in my brain, if you like. And um, I think I know what you mean because I'm an artist too. But you were also uh, saying that uh, all these realities are there and we, we shift from experiencing them or beginning to comprehend them. Is that, is that, 
my confused. I mean, uh, you get, I get bits and pieces, and it goes up. That which which I encounter must be distinguished from uh, from myself, and that within which all that I encounter finds its place. So I'm basically trying to say that the, the wide space within which I look at the sky, it's under, under the sky that, that I encounter everything. That's a bit like uh, the, the abstract form of deep sleep, really. That's a bit like, like the, the, the god of devotional religion. But that I am.